Welcome to This Is America, November 25th, 2022. On today's episode, first we speak with two members of the Black Rose Anarchist Federation about the ongoing Mass United Auto Workers, or UAW, strike across the University of California. You talk about how the strike grew out of a wave of wildcat strikes in early 2020 across the UC system, and how workers are fighting to build rank-and-file power and win a cost-of-living wage increase in one of the most expensive housing markets in the United States. We then turn towards our discussion, where we offer up an anarchist analysis of the midterms, why the pundit class got it so wrong, and what this means for social movements and the struggles ahead. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. In the midst of increasing attacks against the LGBTQ community, both from the Republican Party and from far-right actors, people across the U.S. are reeling from a 22-year-old gunman who walked into a nightclub in Colorado Springs just before the start of the Trans Day of Remembrance and opened fire, tragically killing five people and injuring many more. The gunman was thankfully stopped, but not by police, but by people inside the club who disarmed and then beat the shooter. While more information is coming out all the time, what we do know is that the shooter's grandfather is a MAGA Republican in office in California, and his own father, when interviewed, espoused anti-gay views. People who knew the shooter also reported that he often used anti-gay slurs, and a video has also emerged of the shooter and his mother shouting racist slurs at an airport. The wider right has responded by attacking those who stopped the shooter for attending an LGBTQ event in the first place, while doubling down on attacks against the LGBTQ community. Across the U.S., people held vigils and rallies in solidarity, denouncing the wave of anti-LGBTQ attacks and threats by groups like the Proud Boys against Pride and beyond. Anarchists and militant queers and trans people dropped banners, held vigils. In Colorado Springs, an anonymous group claimed credit for vandalizing the front entrance to the anti-LGBTQ group Focus on the Family, writing in graffiti, Their blood is on your hands, five lives lost. Focus on the Family is most well known for raising millions to attack same-sex marriage, promoting the horrific practice of conversion therapy. A statement from the anonymous group who took credit for the vandalism stated, It is important to us that you understand why Focus on the Family must be held accountable for the ramifications of their hateful theology. You have likely seen the onslaught of anti-trans legislation, of which Focus on the Family is a huge proponent, both in funding and propaganda. With an alarmingly expansive network, they work closely with powerful entities, such as the DeVos family, to promote and fund this anti-trans legislation. Focus on the family's goal is to eradicate queerness. Tactics they use to achieve this include indoctrination, media saturation, falsified research, and conversion therapy. We encourage you to continue to investigate the many examples of their culpability, which can be found front and center on their own website. The White House has now stepped in to try to stop the potential railroad strike right before the holidays, 
after workers at the largest U.S. railroad union voted down a Biden-backed deal. In 1991, then-President Bush, later backed by Congress, crushed a national rail strike by ordering over a quarter of a million workers back to work after only a day out on strike. Meanwhile, in California, tens of thousands of United Auto Workers remain on strike across the University of California system, demanding a cost-of-living wage increase. At UC Davis and UC Santa Barbara, after a week of barricades on the campus, dining halls on both campuses were liberated and made free to everyone. A statement published online wrote, This dining commons belongs to you. It's right in the name, commons, something held in common by a community. This university belongs to you. For as long as it lasts, it belongs to everyone. It runs on the labor, research and study of students, workers, and staff. Bureaucratic administrators have one function, to exploit that labor and research. They exist to underpay workers, treat students as clients and customers, and build a wall between the campus and the community that they also rip off as landlords. This exploitation is such an unpopular idea that they need an armed wing to make it work or everyone would laugh at them. That's the cops. Today we do this act of common making in solidarity with everyone who is food insecure, rent burden, and everyone whose research and labor is exploited including those striking for a better contract. We are in solidarity with their demand for a COLA and their community safety demands that include the call to defund the university police. Have a meal, it's yours. Turning towards Seattle, thousands of high school students organized a walkout after the shooting death of a student and to denounce calls for more police on school campuses. Instead, students clamored for more counselors per student. In Boise, Idaho, anti-fascist researchers outed a white supremacist police officer who spoke at a recent white nationalist American Renaissance conference who had contributed to the website in the past under a pseudonym which referenced a neo-Nazi in the movie American History X. The police officer retired from the police force in September of 2022, but before they retired, they hosted the department's podcast over the course of the year. Responding to a call for actions in solidarity with the ongoing fight for sovereignty on Wet'suwet'en territory, several direct actions were recently claimed. On Puget Sound Anarchist, the following communique was posted. Over the last several weeks we have spiked large swaths of trees in the so-called Capital State Forest in rural so-called Thurston County, Washington, ancestral Nisqually, Squaxin, and Chehalis land, leading up to the November 5th day of action in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en struggle against coastal gas link and the Canadian government's colonial intrusion into their territory. The seasonal transition has been sharp and hard on the land. Our forests here experienced an unusually sudden shift from severe heat waves and drought that last and late into the fall, to floods and freezes with minimal autumnal gentle rains to steward the earth into the rainy season. These forests which have fed so many for time immemorial show the consequences. As climate change fueled natural disasters become more and more devastating every year, the industrial rate of destruction of everything that sustains the land and the people on it only escalates. Politicians speak out of one side of their mouths about truth and reconciliation or climate action, while with the other side of their mouths they send the police to clear the way for mining and logging companies. Swaths of land dripping in moss and bubbling with streams, teeming with mushrooms and other life will soon be left as dry mangled fields, mirrors of the hellscapes being created in unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. Lifeless, and robbed of all sustenance and culture, useless to anyone but the corporations and people who sold off the forests they had no connection to. All of these industries are on the side of coastal gas link and they are all our enemies. 
We feel the rage, creativity, and determination of the people of Wet'suwet'en and Wazinkra, and must all act against every aspect of colonial industry which threatens the sovereignty and lifeblood of lands and waters. We hope this message serves as a warning to deter all upcoming timber sales in the capital forest. If the trees are cut, we hope for maximum damage to the chainsaws and mills. Up in Wet'suwet'en territory, CGL just blew up Lamprey Creek, an active salmon and eel spawning ground and home to two elders' cabins on the Wazinkwa River. These waters and forests are lifeblood being stolen and desecrated. Drilling under the crystal clear Wazinkwa is active, while salmon actively spawn nearby. Wet'suwet'en protectors have specifically called on anarchists to step up. This comes with huge risk for the Wet'suwet'en. Let that call be heard and felt by our friends and our enemies. Meanwhile in so-called Philadelphia, and in Ontario, Canada, various communiques posted to Philly anti-capitalist and North Shore counter-info were posted claiming sabotage actions. Unicorn Riot is reporting that eco-prisoner, Joseph Dibby, has been sentenced to time served. As Unicorn Riot reported, Joseph Mahmoud Dibby, a 54-year-old environmental activist and former Earth Liberation Front saboteur, was sentenced to time served the day after pleading guilty to two counts of conspiracy to commit arson and one count of arson. Dibby was also ordered to complete 1,000 hours of community service. Dibby is a former member of an autonomous cell of the Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front, loose networks of activists who in the late 90s and early 2000s took responsibility for a string of attacks on industries, businesses, and government entities they saw as responsible for the mounting environmental crisis. In 2005, in the midst of post-911 anti-terrorism fervor, the FBI rolled out Operation Backfire, which ultimately led to the indictment of nearly 20 people on serious felony charges. Although Dibby was not initially charged in the case, he was subpoenaed to appear before a federal grand jury to testify against another activist. When confronted with the choice of whether or not to cooperate, or snitch, Dibby chose to flee to Syria, his family's country of origin. Shortly thereafter, he was indicted in a sweeping conspiracy case. Demonstrations continued against a tour put on by Let Women Speak, a group of far-right connected TERFs or trans-exclusatory radical feminists who attempted to hold anti-trans rallies across the U.S., often linking up with fascist groups like the Proud Boys. In both Philadelphia and New York City, over 100 people mobilized in each city to shout down the anti-trans activists, effectively shutting down their rallies. Action in defense of the Atlanta forest continues. First up in our action roundup, people claimed credit for closing down the Atlanta Police Department shooting range inside the Atlanta forest. According to a communique posted to Scenes from the Atlanta Forest, On the evening of Saturday, November 19th, chainsaw-wielding militants took action to close down the Atlanta Police Department's shooting range inside the Wheelani Forest, where APD trains weekly to kill and maim the people of Atlanta. A few small trees were selectively felled in order to block the access road to the shooting range. One of the felled trees hit a power line which provides electricity to the shooting range, leading to a power surge which blew a transformer and disabled the cameras, which were then destroyed with fire and hammers. The power line only services the shooting range. No residential areas were impacted by the outage. Since the closing of the shooting range, the Wheelani Forest has not been quiet, even the cold November woods are full of life and noise. 
but it has been more peaceful without the police filling it with the sounds of war. We hope that all the residents of the forest and the surrounding neighborhood can relax better in the relative silence, but we must be clear that we didn't do this for their sake. We took this action for the dead, for Racehard Brooks and every person killed by the Atlanta police, for every murdered revolutionary, for the Muscogee who were forced from this land, for every enslaved person who lived and died on the plantation here, for every prisoner killed by guards at the old prison farm and buried in unmarked graves in the forest. This forest is theirs and we will not allow the police to desecrate it with their presence. We will not allow the police to bulldoze over the history of their own crimes. The land remembers. We remember. Cop City will never be built. Another communique posted to the same counter-info website, seen from the Atlanta forest, reported taking credit for torching a work truck, reading, in the late afternoon hours of Tuesday, November 8th, Election Day, another tow truck entered the parking lot of the Wheelani People's Park with the intention of carrying away the charred remains of Ryan Millsap's tow truck, which was burnt back in July. The latter truck has become a monument to the power of this movement, and had already been defended from extraction at least once before. So when this new truck came its driver saying that he had already called the cops, and he'd be towing our truck as soon as they arrived forest defenders were quick to respond. The police, on the other hand, were not. When it became clear to the driver that the cops were too lazy, overextended, and scared to come to his aid, he abandoned the vehicle with the keys inside. When DKPD did finally arrive on the scene, they were too scared to even enter the parking lot, let alone the forest. Forest defenders drove the truck to the RC field in an attempt to block the path where a bulldozer had entered last May. Then they set it ablaze, taking great care to ensure that the surrounding grass didn't catch. Meanwhile, those Americans that still believe in the ritual of voting were casting their ballots for the maintenance of one or the other version of the status quo. They think of this as freedom, as though the choice between 100 brands of cereal were the same as choosing how to live. We chose another route. We chose to defend a territory that has been claimed by the people, for the people where the police do not dare to go because they have seen what happens to enemy vehicles. We elected a raging fire beneath a full moon. Finally, another report posted to the same website, took credit for the burning of an excavator. Speaking of communiques, a communique posted to various counter-info websites claimed credit for vandalizing a building belonging to Adidas in Portland, Oregon, reading, Early November 20th, several hours before the opening ceremony of the 2022 World Cup, we smashed up most buildings at the Adidas North American headquarters in Portland, Oregon. We shattered windows, broke doors and covered walls with paint across the corporate campus, including office buildings, the gym and cafe. Adidas is one of FIFA's primary long-term partners, and a main sponsor of the World Cup in Qatar this year. The history of the World Cup is one of death and displacement. Every stadium stands upon the dead bodies of workers who built it. In Qatar, over 6,500 migrant workers from South Asia died during the decade of preparations for the 2022 World Cup, forced to work in slave conditions. The World Cup was made possible by hundreds of thousands of migrant workers forced into labor through a combination of physical violence, threats of imprisonment, passport confiscation, debt bondage, and more. Every World Cup involves the violent evictions and displacement of thousands, replacing whole neighborhoods with stadiums and other infrastructure. The entire operation is protected by huge increases of militarized policing and surveillance, with 3,000 riot cops sent from Turkey, 
4,500 soldiers from the Pakistan Army and forces from the British Royal Navy and Air Force coming to Qatar to enforce control during the World Cup. All this is enabled by the huge companies that sponsor the World Cup and FIFA in the interest of profit. We reject the logics of global capitalism and the state, and the endless violence they create together. All that's left to do is fight back. And turning towards the Midwest, according to a series of communiques released by cells of the Animal Liberation Front, or ALF, posted to the Animal Liberation Front press office, thousands of mink across fur farms in Ohio and Michigan have been released back into the wild. In early November, 1,000 mink were liberated in Ohio, followed by 800 mink in Michigan. Then on November 15th, at least 10,000 minks were released from another fur farm in Ohio. According to The Truth About Fur, there are around 120 mink fur farms in the U.S. and 60 in Canada, each generating tens of millions a year in profits. If you're looking for some ways to show solidarity, long-term anarchist Lorenzo Camboa Irvin and Jonina Abram Irvin are both in need of support with their housing situation. Check our show notes for ways to donate. And also anarchists in Mexico City who were recently attacked after protesting the state's attempt at recuperation of the memory of the anarchist militant Flores Magon are in need of support as well. Again, see our show notes for ways to support. And now for some upcoming events. On November 29th in Seattle, there is a mutual aid fair at Cal Anderson Park starting at 4 p.m. On November 29th, Cindy Milstein is speaking at Firestorm Books and Coffee in Asheville, North Carolina. And mark your calendars for May 2023, there is a healthcare autonomy conference happening in Durham, North Carolina. If you value what's going down as an autonomous media resource, please subscribe to our podcast, follow our RSS feed, tell a friend about us, listen to us on the radio, we broadcast on the West Coast on Pacifica Radio and beyond. You can follow us currently on Twitter and Mastodon, and if you enjoy this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us today. As always, enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. Hey there, this is Cameron. Uh, I am a rank and file member of United Auto Workers 2865, which is the union of teaching assistants, tutors, and readers at the University of California system. Um, and I'm also a militant of the Black Rose Anarchist Federation. And I am Juan. I'm a formerly rent burdened grad student from Davis now based in Berkeley, where I am the organizing steward for our local Tenant and Neighborhood Council, or, or Tink Local. And I'm also a militant of the Black Road Anarchist Federation. And we encourage folks, we have several podcast interviews with members of the Black Rose Anarchist Federation talking about various subjects. And also, we'll link this in the show notes, of course, but we have several interviews about the wave of wildcat strikes that took place from student workers at the UC or University of California system several years ago. We're going to talk about that in a second. And also, we have several interviews with folks in Tank uh, or the Tenants and Neighborhood Councils uh, group that's based out of the Bay Area. So we encourage you to check out all of that content. Lots of interesting stuff. 
just about a month ago, we had somebody on that was, I don't know if they were part of Tank or it was another tenant council that was working with Tank where their building was on strike. So there's a lot, lot of moving pieces here and lots of stuff going on. But let's just start off. Let's go back to the very historic wave of Wildcat strikes that kicked off at the UC system several years ago. Go back, talk to us, just give us a little history of that. How did that end and how does that lead us to where we are now? So I actually think we're going to go a little further back and talk about our uh, 2018 contract uh, campaign in the UAW UAW 2865, where uh, at that time, kind of guided by... Uh, the Jane McAlevey strategy of building for a uh, supermajority strike. Um, the elected leadership and kind of folks who were trying to organize on the ground uh, really felt like they didn't have the capacity to pull off a strike and dissuaded any strike action, actually kind of rammed through a vote on the uh, contract that they had uh, developed with the admin where uh, it was a poor wage increases next to no real gains based on our demands at the time. And so this left many folks who had organized for months and months and months really uh, frustrated by the, one, the lack of militancy, but two, the real lack of gains. Um, and we saw this play out in the actual vote itself. Uh, where certain campuses where there were these organized militant minorities were able to turn out 80%, 90% no votes on the contract, whereas other places that had less kind of rank and file capacity um, turned out, it was still split decisions. Uh, the vote barely passed by uh, two or three percentage points. And so that lack of gains and rising housing prices, especially in places like Santa Cruz, uh, left graduate students even more precarious than they began. And so these militant minorities had really, uh, my militant minority factions had really uh, began organizing for, um, to confront these issues outside of the contract struggle itself. We given U.S. labor law and the um, no-strike clauses that are built into the UAW contract, much like other unionized uh, shops contracts, um, we were unable uh, legally to take any collective action. And so um, militants at UC Santa Cruz had really built the groundwork for a larger wildcat strike that was building on the Red for Ed movement across that kind of moved throughout the South, um, the ongoing struggles in uh, the Chicago public schools, um, the LA Unified Teachers Unions. Um, there really was this convergence of mass struggle in um, uh, in education. Um, yeah, so so that kind of led into like Juan was talking about this period where uh, there was a concerted effort, particularly on the Santa Cruz campus, to try to build uh, a militant sort of rank and file uh, base that could affect or at least pressure the administration of that particular campus into doing something to address the really exorbitant uh, 
prices um, of the housing market in Santa Cruz. I mean, for those that don't know, Santa Cruz is uh, the Santa Cruz Watsonville metro area is the literally the second most expensive metro area in the entire entire United States, which is is pretty extreme considering that Santa Cruz Watsonville is um, usually understood as a, a rural area. So for it to be the second most expensive metro area in the U.S. is, is pretty extraordinary, but it is. So given given that issue, um, living in Santa Cruz uh, in order to be able to work at the university, which again, for those that may not be aware, um, if you are a graduate student at the University of California, typically the arrangement is that you work as a teaching assistant um, or there's a number of other positions that you can take like a, a, a tutor or a reader, but typically you're a teaching assistant and you are tasked with performing honestly the vast majority of the labor to make um, a, a course for undergraduate students run. So you teach sections, which are sort of uh, small units of uh, larger courses. So you take 30 or so um, I mean, it should be less, but typically 30 or so uh, groups of students from a larger um, lecture and you teach them weekly. And then you also are responsible for grading those students. Um, really, the only thing that faculty, tenure faculty in the UC system are responsible for are giving lectures and creating syllabi. Um, teaching assistants are the ones that do most of the um, uh, uh, extended form teaching and uh, follow up with students and grading. So it, we are paid a salary to do that. And the salary that we earn, this, this is system wide. So the, the contract that is enforced for all teaching assistants is system wide from San Diego all the way up to Santa Cruz and Berkeley. And we make uh, just about $24,000 a year. That's the salary that we make. Um, and in a place like Santa Cruz, where the average cost of an apartment is, you know, $2,500 or more typically, it's just not feasible to be paying uh, that amount of money to, 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 to live in that place where you're supposed to be working. So it's not uncommon uh, for people to um, commute in from from outside from San Jose. So to drive, may, people may not be familiar with the geography of of California, but Santa Cruz is separated from the larger Bay Area by a small mountain range. And um, driving over that mountain range from a place like San Jose, for example, is is very difficult, time consuming, hour plus long commute. Um, uh, so so people do extreme things in order to be able to work. Um, at the university. Um, and so with that in mind, with those issues, those, that primary issue of what is called rent burden. Um, and again, just for clarification purposes, rent burden is a designation that is used by the federal government, um, particularly the housing and urban development department, which, uh, specifies that if, if somebody is paying 30% or more of their wages, um, to uh, rent, then they are technically rent burdened. And, you know, on the Santa Cruz campus, uh, I believe the last uh, survey that we did found that 90 plus percent of, of graduate workers are rent burdened. Um, similar surveys that have been system wide have found similar numbers, 70 to 80 percent of workers across the UC system are rent burdened. Um, but to, to bring it back to the history that we were talking about before, 
So this bad contract in 2018 gets put in place by a slim majority. Um, and, uh, workers in Santa Cruz who are facing these really ex- extraordinary, exorbitant, uh, prices in the housing market began to organize basically to do something in the interim because what they were basically told by, um, the union, uh, union leadership, at least the people that were in power at the time was that, okay, well, we'll negotiate a different contract, you know, in 2022. Um, this was happening in, you know, 2018. Obviously that's not feasible to wait that long in order to, you know, if you're being faced with paying, um, 40, 50, 60, some cases, 70% of your wages toward rent, that is not a feasible way to, to go on living in a place. So they began to organize and that is what eventually, uh, evolved into an escalatory campaign that started with um, actions that targeted the administration of Santa Cruz in particular, UC Santa Cruz in particular, um, but that basically got so much traction that it evolved into a moment where um, rank-and-file militants decided to call for a mass meeting to then decide whether or not to go on or initiate a wildcat strike. And again, for clarification purposes, if you're unaware what a wildcat is, um, most union contracts in the U.S. today this is basically across the board, include a no-strike clause. So while the, the contract is in force, if it has a no-strike clause, you cannot strike. A wildcat is basically throwing that out the window and saying, we're going to strike anyway, and we're going to do it, you know, um, in spite of the contract being in force, and typically uh, without uh, uh, sanction from the union, from from the union that is uh, that the membership belongs to. So... Basically, yeah. So the the, the wildcat began um, and extended basically from the winter of, of 2019 into uh, early 2020, and was more or less ended by the the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we were on the picket line basically up until the day that the university began sh- shuttering classes. Um, obviously, you know, this is true for everyone. None of us knew what was <laughs> about to happen. No one knew that the world is about to shut down on the scale that it was. Um, but that is, that is the place where the, the, uh, the wildcat left off. Um, to get more specific, I guess, about the interim period, like right after COVID-19 shut things down, at that point in the struggle, um, there were about, uh, 40, if I remember correctly, 40 teaching assistants who were withholding grades. And that was the main strike action that the Wildcat was, in, was, was taking was that they were, uh, as teaching assistants, we were withholding submitting undergraduate grades. Um, so there were about 40 teaching assistants who had continued to withhold grades up until the very end of, of the strike. And the university eventually went forward with firing those people, which is a really, really uncommon practice. Teaching assistants don't get fired almost ever. Um, you have to do something pretty egregious to get fired. Um, so those people got fired. Uh, we basically went immediately into a mode of, of, um, of, reta- of, of fighting against those firings and ensuring that people um, got rehired. And especially since we were going into a global pandemic to make sure that those people would have access to their healthcare again. And we were very successful in ensuring that all those people got rehired. They did end up getting rehired and they got access to their healthcare again. Um, the other thing, and I think the thing that's important to emphasize about the wildcat, one of the, one of the main sort of ma- specific material gains that we won in the wildcat 
was a $2,500 a year or so annual, um, and I'm going to use the university's language here, quote unquote, housing supplement, which essentially was a 10% wage increase for uh, for us. So um, to make that into a succinct statement, our Wildcat won us a 10% wage increase while a contract was in force. Um, I don't think that that is something that can be understated. That's a, a really, a really huge deal. And we can talk a little bit more about the other lasting effects that the Wildcat have ha- has had, especially going into this strike. Um, cause there are other, um, less, you know, like specific monetary or material effects that have, that have been almost more important than the money that we won during that, that period. So, um, we can go into that. I don't know if you want to ask another a question, but, um, yeah, let us know what you want to, how you want to go forward. No, you know, tell us what happened next. In the interim period, um, basically, uh, negotiations. Well, let me back up. Uh, the, in the interim period, what we saw obviously during COVID, and this is outside of the UC, but we saw like a, a renewal of rank and file energy across sectors uh, in the economy that had really not existed um, uh, prior to COVID. So you saw, obviously, campaigns with the Amazon Labor Union. Um, you've seen campaigns with uh, workers at Trader Joe's, obviously, the Starbucks uh, campaigns. All these things are campaigns and sectors that had previously been considered, you know, by um, the sort of mainstay traditional unions, they considered those sectors to be basically unorganizable. And rank and file workers have taken it on themselves and been, you know, as we've seen, fairly successful in building out um, organizing structures in those places. So that that is what obviously has happened in, in the bigger picture in the interim. And so that is the the background context of of us entering into this new period where our contract um, is, is, has coming up for negotiation or, um, as we go into 2022. So basically what has happened is the other important context here. Um, well, I guess the other important thing that's happened specific to the, the UC system is that a, uh, student researchers have formed, um, their own union. Uh, and it was, I believe in 2021 was the largest single new, uh, unionized body of workers in the U S in 2021 was student researchers at the university of California. So that was a huge, really important, um, uh, moment and force multiplication for us. Um, you know, prior to that, during our wildcat, you know, um, there were student researchers who were involved, but they weren't covered by a contract. They weren't protected by a union. They weren't organized. And so for them to now be organized as a new bargaining unit is also really important. Um, they're also uh, organized with the, the UAW, United Auto Workers. Um, so that's another important contextual piece. But going into contract negotiations this year, the other important like big background contextual piece is that there are um, three units of UAW who are negotiating um, uh, uh, concurrently, so together, which is unprecedented. It's not a thing that happens usually in any in any in any sector, let alone 
in higher education. So it's UAW 2865, which is the union local that I belong to, um, which again is, is teaching assistants, readers, um, tutors. It's, uh, UAW SRU, which is the student researchers. And then it's also UAW 5810, which is the postdoctoral, um, employees of the university. Um, so all three of these units were bargaining together with, with the university because, um, 5810's contract came up for negotiation at the same time as ours. SRU is negotiating their first contract and our, and our, uh, 2865's contract was, was up. So we began negotiations earlier this year and, you know, it's, the kind of typical uh, experience that you see with these things where um, it's a lot of back and forth, a lot of like um, uh, uh, skirting around the, the main issue. Um, but I think the, the, the important thing, and I, when I say the main issue, this is the next thing I want to say is that I want to touch really uh, uh, not briefly, but I want to emphasize the, main demands that all three units have. Um, so there are a few really important demands that we've, we've, um, placed on the bargaining table in front of the university. Um, one of them is a, uh, $2,000, $2,000 a month childcare subsidy, um, for, uh, student workers who are also parents, um, as well as tuition subsidies for those same, um, student worker parents who for their children for any UC affiliated childcare um, uh, uh, programs um, as well as dependent healthcare, including that. Um, but the two K a month is up from, I think it's right now it's like only like $600 a year or something like just completely absurd that, that, you know, anyone who's ever, um, you know, had to figure out childcare for, for, for work knows that that's just an impossible, ridiculous, insulting number. So that's one of the demands. Another demand is a waiver for, um, a fee waiver for international students who currently are basically because of their international status are being required to pay to work, which is patently absurd also. So we're asking for that to be instituted a waiver for that. We also are demanding, um, Basically, just better accommodate, uh, better accommodations for workers with disabilities. So that's, you know, more resources in general, um, um, accommodations from the university, uh, when it comes to, um, timelines and things like that. So those are some of the, like the, the, the big demands. The, the, the one I think that is, this is, it's important to say that all those demands are central and they, they, they have to be, they have to be passed. None of them are, are more important than the other. But I will say that the demand that is on everyone's lips, the one that everyone is sort of talking about and the one that you often see referenced, um, the most is a, a demand regarding wages. And it's the, it's this demand is directly has a direct, uh, it has a direct, uh, 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 continuity from the Wildcat. Um, so the Wildcat, uh, strike, the demand at the Wildcat strike was a cost of living adjustment, a COLA. Um, and it was a, uh, increase basically of, um, $1,412 a month for, for, uh, st- student workers at UC Santa Cruz specifically, that was the COLA demand when the wildcat was happening. Since then, 
the union has taken up as its official demand um, a cost of living adjustment for all workers in the system. Um, and that would basically uh, would amount to a $54,000 starting salary for, for all workers. So again, again, to put it in comparison, our current uh, starting salary is around $24,000. We're asking for, we're demanding $54,000. And the reason we're demanding that is because that number specifically would bring every academic employee at the university out of rent burden. No worker would be rent burdened if they were paid that amount. The other important thing about this demand is that it is adjusted annually as a cost of living adjustment. So, you know, if inflation were to continue to rise, then this number, this 54K number, would be adjusted to ensure that no student worker would be um, faced with rent burden. Um, and so I want to say real quick and, and, um, we can, we can talk a little bit more about some other stuff in a moment, but I want to emphasize the fact that this demand, this, this COLA demand, like I said, it has a direct continuity from the Wildcat. And the only reason that the, the official union body has taken it up as a central demand at bargaining is because a militant minority of workers at UC Santa Cruz launched a Wildcat strike while a contract was in force that then spread to basically every UC campus in the system and, and it, they built the power to, to make this into the prevailing demand that moved the majority of workers in the UC system. So it has now become the flagship demand essentially of this contract bargaining period. And again, would not have happened. There's no way it would have happened without the militant activity of uh workers not just at santa cruz but everywhere during the wildcat strike um and so you know this is i think an important thing to emphasize because it shows that a dedicated group of rank and file militants can have a really massively outsized effect that can then change um the entire trajectory and direction and strategy of a much larger body like a uh, a union so this is this is a really important point to emphasize and i think it's sort of the key point we want to make in this interview is that um the only reason why the demand that the university is facing from the union right now is fifty four thousand dollars is because rank and file worker militants made that demand during the wildcat so that is i think that is the most important lasting legacy of the wildcat strike is that it, it changed the union. It changed the unions involved in this struggle. Um, so yeah, that's, that basically, basically brings us up to where we are now. Um, so negotiations were going on for basically the better part of six months. Um, and they essentially broke down and, uh, our, our contract, uh, went out of force um, on, uh, November 1st. And, uh, soon after that, we took a, uh, strike poll, um, or a strike authorization vote, which, in which 36,000, um, more than 36,000 workers across the university voted to, at, at a 90, I think it's like a 98% margin, something like that, voted yes on the strike, uh, to go out on strike. And then shortly after that, um, starting on Monday, we, we did initiate that strike, um, and we can talk, talking a lot right now, so I might, I might pass it back to Juan, but um, I think the next thing that we, we may maybe want to talk about is the 
in comparison to other strikes that have been going on in the U.S., this the scale and size of this strike is historic. And I don't use that word lightly. I mean that literally. So I'll maybe pass it back to Juan to talk a little bit about the historic degree that this uh, historic place the strike is, is taking. Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize that this is the single largest strike in higher education history. Um, I'm not sure how many folks remember, um, this will really date me, but uh, the strikes of 2011, kind of at the height of Occupy and taking over universities, the activity was widespread, was vast, but was largely driven by undergrad. The one... Uh, couple of days strike that I took part in when I first arrived at uh, my grad program um, was um, was nowhere near as large as this is. This truly is uh, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented in the history of higher education. And even more, uh, more contemporary, this is the largest strike since COVID-19 began in the U.S. Um, at Kaiser uh, Permanente in Northern California last year, um, the union brought out their uh, mental health care workers, uh, about 40,000 of them for a single day strike. Uh, recently, there was about a 10-week strike uh, of 2,000 mental health care workers in uh, in the same health care system. Um, that, those have been the largest ones since COVID started. Um, so this 48,000 uh, number of folks out on strike really uh, dwarfs that. It's, it's about 20% larger than the one right behind it. Um, but the key point to emphasize there is that these are sites of social reproduction, where people are having day-to-day interactions with the people that they take care of, that are providing for our communities, that people have these deep relationships with. And there's lots of support behind them. Um, which can and should translate into lots of power behind it. When worker struggles can unite with other uh, sectors of these struggles, uh, it can really further shift the balance of power. Um, so one way that can look by um, for grad students uh, who are living in university housing is to begin building for, say, rent strikes at the end of this month, to withhold your rent in support of, in solidarity with the graduate student worker strike to maximize the leverage on the university. The same thing for undergrads who are living in student dormitories. They can demand to, uh, can withhold the, their um, housing uh, fees um, and leverage that pressure on the university. So really building out into all confronting all of the university's tentacles at once to match the size and historic scale of this uh, strike can really bring the university to its knees. But we'll pass it back over to you. The big question that I have and a lot of other people have is that you had this uh, momentous strike uh, a little while back that was self-organized, you know, uh, came outside of the official union apparatus and now this is, uh, you know, under the auspices of the union itself. So what is that dynamic like? And what does that mean for uh, anti-capitalist militants on the ground? What does that mean for the makeup of the strike? Um, is there a tension between more self-organized forms of the strike 
and you know those that want to like channel it back into this union bureaucracy you know where do you see that i mean again i think the thing to emphasize is the fact that uh okay so the the wildcat was led by a minority of workers that's the fact of the wildcat it was a minority strike um it it was it didn't involve at by any means the number of workers that are out on on the scale that they are now um it had an outsized effect and that outsized effect was that the official union apparatus was redirected and altered so that uh, when we go in, when we went into contract negotiations for this year, the again the leading demand was the the cost of living adjustment, the POLA demand, um, and again that would not have happened had it not been for the Wildcat. So it's 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 interesting because I, I would say that. Uh, of course, there's always going to be tensions within uh, a body as large as as the unions that we're talking about, because there's just going to be different factions with different strategies in mind. But I think the important thing to talk to say is that um, that the the strategy was changed and the strategy was changed by a a, a group of militant workers who were able to alter again the strategy of the whole union so that it is now facing in the direction that we want it to um i think that the question will be rather than than organizing outside necessarily of the official sort of structures of the union the question will be can we keep the the official structures of the union pointed in the direction strategically that we want it to be so that is that is that is you know going to look like ensuring that the strike continues until the cola demand is met, right? So whenever you have a, uh, a strike over a contract like this, um, there are going to be factions in a union, um, you know, typically people who are, um, I would say, staff, staffers of unions, um, other people with maybe, you know, slightly more um, conservative estimations of what is possible when workers go on strike. They're going to be pushing for... Uh, a uh, compromise number that isn't $54,000. They're going to say, well, you know, the university uh, can only give us so much. And look, this is, you know, a historic wage increase. Maybe it's not a COLA, but maybe you get whatever XYZ number, and that should be good enough. And we should vote yes to accept whatever tentative agreement. Um, the question for us will be, can we ensure that we stay out long enough um, in general, to, to force the university to give us better offers over time, but also that if a tentative agreement gets accepted um, by our bargaining team um, that is below a COLA, the question will be, do we have the capacity as rank-and-file workers, as a rank-and-file movement, um, to reject that tentative agreement? Because again, in, in most unions, most unions that call themselves democratic, a bargaining team will accept a tentative agreement and then it will be passed back to rank and file workers to vote th that that tentative agreement up or down. And so the question will be for us that if the bargaining team ex accepts something that is below our standard, that isn't a cola, then we have to have the networks in place and the power in place um, to be able to say no collectively. Um, so how do we do that? That's the question: is how do we how do we build? Uh, the kind of rank and file power that can keep the uh, uh, wheel of strategy of the union lashed to the mast uh, that points us toward cola. How do we do that? 
we think that the way to do that is to start organizing rank and file networks now. So that means um, particularly organizing within your own departments, um, having conversations with other rank and file workers and talking to them about, um, you know, in general, uh, talking to them, getting to know them as you already probably should. But if you don't getting to know them, um, doing things together, going to the picket together as a group, um, painting banners together, eating meals together, taking care of each other's kids, stuff like that. But using those opportunities of interaction to build trust and to also talk about any possible offer or tentative, tentative agreement that comes from the university so that once we have those rank and file networks built, we can then, like we said, activate them to, to vote no. Um, and those rank and file networks have to be, you know, really organized, um, you know, at the cellular, cellular level in the department, but then those departments also need to be organized across the campus. And then they also need to be organized across the system. So rank and file networks need to be organized across the entirety of the system, um, uh, of the UC so that when the time comes to vote on a tentative agreement, um, whether it's one that we like that has COLA or whether it's one that we don't, Whatever it is, we make that decision collectively. We don't just vote as individuals going to cast a ballot. We have conversations about what we like or don't like about a contract, possible contract, and we vote together. We don't do it in isolation. Um, we do it together. Um, so I think that that's really, that's really the question is we have pointed the, the union. We have, uh, pointed the union in the direction we want it to go. The question will be, can we keep it in that direction? And can we keep the strike up long enough to force the university uh, to accede to our demands? Um, and, you know, that is that is that is the question of, of any open ended strike. And that's something that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact this is an open ended strike. There is no date for this strike to end. Um it's a war of attrition right now. The university hasn't even come back to the bargaining table yet with my uh, my union local because, you know, we don't know why they haven't, but my best guess is that they want to tire us out. They want us to feel like, oh, there's this big burst of energy at the beginning, and then once you've, you know, gotten uh, your energy out after a week of picketing, you'll be ready to be more serious and come back to the bargaining table and, and you know... Um, uh, uh, lower your standards for whatever contract you, uh, you're, you're willing to accept. So the, the, the way to counter that is to build from the base up, is to build worker, wor- working, uh, uh, rank and file worker networks that, um, are in communication with each other and that can, you know, when a tentative agreement comes across the line, say, no, this, we don't want that. We want COLA. Um, and so, you know, I think the, 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 the kind of framing in a succinct sort of uh, uh, one sentence um, way that we that we want to put this is that there's there's uh, without a cola there can't be a contract no cola no contract that's that's how we're we're putting these things yeah so that's that's how I'd answer that question um, uh, I'm gonna pass it back to Juan and uh, have Juan talk a little bit about the um, other sort of solidarity organizing that we've seen from different sectors that are uh, adjacent to uh, the strike. So, you know, other other workers that are involved in the the UC, um, uh, 
uh, other so that that means workers who do like actual um, other workers who who are doing work that are not employed by the UC but are maybe employed through contracts, um, faculty, lecturers. Um, we already talked a little bit about undergrads, but maybe we can talk about that a little bit more. So I'm gonna pass it back to Juan. Yeah. So um, one of the I'm I'm gonna quickly jump back to you had started about kind of the um, the reverberations of the wildcat strike. So one of the immediate ones after the wildcat ended for grad students was um, transferring that energy into a rent strike. When the university shut down, when the lockdowns went in place, many grad students uh, in Berkeley uh, at one of their locations, UC Villages, went on a rent strike, uh, hundreds of them. Um, and while they stayed out for a while, um, the uh, time out uh, withholding their rent kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, and so the tank had been helping to organize there and we've been organizing with them uh, over the past couple of years trying to build up some capacity to really confront the university on one of its other key domains uh, or areas of, uh, of control, which is in housing. Um, so that's another area where we've been continuing to build some capacity. Again, a site where tenants can withhold their rent and leverage the power that they have together as a collective. Um, other laborers at the university can kind of take on similar actions with where they have the power to do so. So on the kind of, uh, on the labor side, they're at UC Santa Cruz. Um, bus drivers have been out in full support. Um, even some of the leadership have been out on the strike every day. Um, there's actually a Starbucks uh, the, or organizing in Santa Cruz that is currently out on strike. The bus driver learned about this strike and is redirecting routes away from that Starbucks to support their strike. Um, similarly, in Berkeley, rank-and-file militants have gone to construction uh, constructions where there's unionized workers building new facilities, um, and have talked them, uh, out of, uh, talked them into shutting down their, uh, sites, have walked off the job. Um, similarly, um, on the kind of faculty and lecturer side of things, uh, they should be canceling classes totally. There's been some conversation about moving classes to online instruction. Um, to give an analogy, that would be, if you were working at a factory, that would be like walking out the factory gate, going home and making widgets with your own hammer and nails. That is not what should be happening. The university should be brought to a screeching halt. Um, similar kinds of actions that faculty and lecturers can take, especially towards the end of the quarter or the semester, is by um, withholding grades. This was one of a key choke points that Santa Cruz uh, rank-and-file workers um, leveraged really well during the Wildcat and something that we should take with us going into uh, this next struggle. Um, ways that that can look is by giving everyone A's or giving them incompletes. Um, again, really making sure that the university's typical operations is, is brought to a screeching halt. And then finally, Undergrads who are facing similar conditions like their housing um, should be talking about withholding their rent. Um, 
they should uh, try to put pressure on the university as much as they can. Um, doing email blasts, phone blasts, but again, doing this collectively from the ground up. Masses of folks taking action where they have power on the uh, all the different tentacles of the university and, and bringing down the, uh, the monster that it is. You all talked a lot about building up rank and file networks. I'm just curious, you mentioned this is the biggest strike since the pandemic began. What does that actually look like on the ground? Uh, you know, are people doing like mutual aid projects? We've seen things like people setting up barricades at UC Davis. What are some of the forms this self-organization is taking uh, that you're seeing? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, in general, it's meant that it's just massive numbers of workers walking off the job. I mean, uh, so I'm a, I'm a worker at Santa Cruz, um, which is a relatively small uh, campus compared to some of the other sort of flagship campuses in the UC system like UCLA or, uh, or, Bork- or Berkeley. Um, we have about uh, a little less than 3,000 academic student employees at uh, Santa Cruz, but campuses like Berkeley and, and UCLA have, you know, upwards of six, seven, eight thousand. And we've seen those numbers out in force at those large campuses and elsewhere. Um, at Santa Cruz, we've seen, you know, huge proportions of our workers out too. Um, we've seen just constant picketing, tons and tons of picket signs. Um, in some cases, you know, entrances being shut down, um, other workers, uh, deciding to turn away. Um, one of the things that we also saw recently in, in terms of labor solidarity was the, the Teamsters uh, sanctioned our strike and said that they would not, uh, their FedEx, the FedEx Teamsters would not deliver any packages to any UC uh, campus while the strike was going on. Um, and, and that kind of activity is, 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 you know, being built up through contact with those other workers. Um, yeah, other things that we've seen, uh, in particular, I think a thing that's important to emphasize, uh, what we were talking about, uh, building up the rank and file networks and building up the capacity to say no if we don't want a particular tentative agreement. Um, and even more importantly, I think right now, um, building up the capacity to be able to stay out for as long as possible is, uh, engaging in projects that, you know, increase that capacity. So, I know that some departments uh, uh, are doing work to create internal mutual aid networks so that, you know, if some some workers have more resources than others, they can pass those around or that they can put those collectively into a pot and um, rely on one another. Of course, you know, these things are happening on a more general scale. Um, there, there are, uh, we do get strike pay. We do uh, uh, have a strike fund and we do, you know, um, provide food at like the picket line and things like that. Um, but, you know, as many people are aware, if, if a strike goes on for a long time, those those funds tend to diminish. So we want to emphasize building the capacity of uh, collective self-reliance early on before, you know, the official sort of resources start to run out. And we're already seeing some of that in some places. Um, but we think that 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 strategy is part and parcel of building, you know, networks of rank and file workers who, again, can not just stay out long, but also say no collectively um, when we don't get COLA and a tentative agreement and and not, you know, uh, go back to work until we do have COLA. So those are some of the things, some of the things that we've seen. Um, 
yeah, lots of solidarity, um, lots and lots of people out, um, lots of things like, um, uh, just creative activities on the picket lines. Um, I mean, I've seen lots of dance routines. Um, I've seen lots of banner drops. I've seen lots of, um, sing-alongs and things like that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of creativity and energy on the picket lines right now. Um, and I think as things go on a little bit longer, we'll, we'll see that creativity increase and, and, you know, find new ways for, um, the sort of, uh, uh, activity of the university to be disrupted in different ways. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how things look on the ground at the moment. Um, Maybe r- real quick, we can also talk briefly about what, uh, people who are unaffiliated with the university, um, can do to be in solidarity. Um, yeah, I can give a couple ideas and I'll, I'll pass it back to Juan and Juan can give some ideas too. Um, I think the, the, the most direct, straightforward thing, if, if you live near one of the 10 University of California campuses is to just go to the picket line. Um, you'll be, Welcome with open arms. You can, you know, take a picket sign and, and walk the line with us. Um, that's always more than welcome. Um, you know, we're also always happy to see solidarity actions, you know, so things like, um, banner drops, um, other, other messages of solidarity in any form that, uh, people might want to take. Um, those things, um, if you are feeling, you know, generous, generous in terms of material support, there is a strike fund that you can, um, you can donate to, um, through, uh, I believe if you go to fairuc.org, there's a link to a strike fund that you can find. Um, but yeah, I think, I think of those things that I mentioned, I would love to see more people, um, from the, the areas that the university's campuses are in come out and, and show their support, um, by walking the line with us. And I'll just add the kind of most important thing that folks can do where they're at uh, to support this strike um, is to build rank and file networks with wherever they are. So if you're a, a grad student at another university that has their own, uh, either has a union already or has their own, is starting a campaign, is to build those networks of small groups of people who are reaching out, building trust with their uh, with their coworkers, with their uh, fellow cohort mates, um, and are getting to know one another and uh, having open, honest conversations about uh, are they ready to take action together? Um, are they facing fatigue on the picket line? Are they feeling energized? How can people, uh, how can they continue to support one another? And to build this struggle, to try to generalize a struggle as large as this, as wide as we can. Um, this is, uh, yeah, a really, hopefully this is inspiring for, uh, tens of thousands, millions of, of other workers across California, across the country, uh, and across the world. Well, for those that want to follow updates on the strike, what are some places that people can go to get news about the UAW strike and potentially go out and support or help out? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to connect, uh, I would recommend uh, following on both Instagram and Twitter, uh, pay us more UCSC. Um, that's the sort of rank and file movement, uh, at Santa Cruz. 
And then in Berkeley, there's a similar group uh, called Berkeley Rank and File, which you can find on Instagram and uh, Twitter as well. I think those are the, the best places to get updates uh, about what's going on, uh, particularly in the Bay, but in general, too, across the system. And then um, if you want to follow uh, the Bay Area local of Black Rose, we'll give ourselves a little plug real quick. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Bay Area, uh, B-R-R-N, that's Bay Area Burn. Um, and, uh, you can also, we have a, a new telegram channel cause no one really knows what's going to happen with Twitter. Also, that's the thing. Uh, so if you want to follow our telegram channel, it, the link is t.me slash Bay area B R R N. Um, and, uh, and then generally the, the, the national federation's website is blackrosefed.org. So you can check things out there. Juan and I have, have co-authored a, an article that kind of encapsulates a lot of what we talked about today, um, in a maybe shorter version. Um, and that's going to be published on the Black Rose website coming up here, um, very soon. Hopefully by the time, uh, this interview is out. So be sure to, to check it out there. Oh, darling, if I take your hand, will we travel far away? We have a special discussion this week around the midterms and what it means, what it means for mega world and the right, what this says about the U.S., if anything, and what this means for those of us outside of the electoral system and against it, against the state, social movements and beyond. 
So let's just get into the nuts and bolts. What actually happened? Yeah, so we're still trying to figure that out, right? So not every race has been decided. We know at least one Senate race is going to a runoff, right, which is in Georgia um, between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. <laughs> How Herschel Walker gets 45% of the people in Georgia, 48% of the people in Georgia to vote for him is just more of an indictment about the American political space than almost anything else. Um, but really, most Trump candidates did really badly. Um, they ran below expectations. And... It had really important consequences. So you take people like Carrie Lake, right, who was running for governor of Arizona, um, skewed so far into the like election conspiracy wing nuttery that um, she lost to a very boring candidate, right? Like so, by all accounts, well, we should out. we should make it clear at the time of this recording, uh, it is not set. It's, yeah, not entirely decided yet. Right. But Katie Hobbs is widely considered to be a boring candidate, right? Barely campaigned, didn't really debate, has almost no charisma, right? Carrie Lake used to be a television news anchor. And so ran on this highly charismatic, incredibly well-funded, very slick, Trump-inspired campaign, and very likely is going to lose. Right. Did commercials about smashing TVs and wokeism Mm -hmm. and cancel culture. and Yeah, she played all the greatest hits in, like, the most, the best rendition she could possibly think of. And like it did generate, unfortunately, a lot of support, which is really disturbing, but not probably not enough to win. Right. Jared Majewski, who was running in a district in Ohio, which encompasses parts of the West Side suburbs of Cleveland out to Toledo. It's a really weirdly shaped gerrymandered district, um, but it's been a Democratic district for a long time. Um, and it was considered a district which was going to be hotly contested until Jared Majewski won the Republican primary. Now, for those of you that don't know who this guy is, Jared Majewski is known for being a guy who mowed a giant queue in his lawn. He is not just a QAnon person. He is one of the people who is involved in, like, the story making of QAnon, right? He helps construct the story he's one of these people who sort of goes on a lot of podcasts and stuff like this and he also lied openly about his military record <laughs> while he was running uh you know and people would ask him like oh you're in the military where'd you go he'd be like oh i can't i can't talk about that you know <laughs> really dangerous. he was a, he was a truck mechanic in texas he never even got deployed um and so the republican party at a certain point just dropped funding for him and he lost Right. He lost by a good margin. Doug Mastriano is another one, governor of Pennsylvania. Right. Like he's a QAnon person. He was he rose in sort of people's consciousness through the election conspiracy theory stuff. I think it was a state senator or something like that before that, where he was sort of one of these people in Pennsylvania who was trying to, like, get alternate electors together and stuff. And he built up a cult of personality around himself sort of as an as a far right troll or like a media influencer. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. And not only did he lose, but Dr. Oz lost as well. And a lot of that was the follow-on effects of just how far off the rails the Pennsylvania Republican Party has gone, right? Um, I mean, you're even seeing people like Ron Johnson, who's like an incredibly long-serving senator from Wisconsin, Republican senator from Wisconsin, um, on the verge of losing a seat. Last time I checked, they hadn't actually decided that yet. And he was expected to win by four or five, six points. Um, 
But really the thing that people sort of push back on was he was one of these people that really went super hard in on the Trump conspiracy theory stuff and then the January 6th conspiracy theories. And it cost him. Right. And so we see this like Republicans are going to take the House. That's going to happen, but it's going to be by a very thin majority. They may even control the Senate by a one or two vote majority, maybe. But that majority was supposed to be a lot bigger, a lot bigger that there were people predicting 25 seat majorities. There are people predicting, you know, swings of 60, 70 seats like Tea Party level kind of swings. Now, that was probably an exaggeration, but the idea that their majority is going to be potentially under 10 um, puts them in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and just uh, and just so people are aware, generally speaking, <laughs> because the way that politics works in the United States, the, the opposite party of the president that's in power, generally they pick up a lot more seats in the House and the yeah. Senate because people are like, oh, stuff actually sucks, and we're going to punish the party that's in power and hopefully get more people in. And also the other followers of the opposite party are generally more mobilized to go out and get their people this into office. This is such the case. This is such the case that since 1994, the party that's in the White House has won the midterm elections exactly twice. One was in 1998, where voters where support for the Republican Party dropped through the floor because voters thought that they overreached on impeachment. And then the other time was 2002, which was right after September 11th. Right. Yeah. Right. So outside of those two incredibly extraordinary circumstances, this is something that happens like all the time, right? It's not abnormal for the party in the White House to lose a significant number of seats. But what's important is that in this case, that swing was way far below expectations. There were people talking about red waves and all this other kind of stuff. And the swing was pretty modest. Um, to the point where, again, they didn't even win the total vote count, right? Republicans never win the total vote count in either chamber. Uh, but they didn't win it this time either, right? Even though they're going to end up in a majority because of gerrymandering and all kinds of stuff, right? So that's an important point to point out, too, is that a lot of people are saying a fair majority of the seats in the House that they did get was because of gerrymandering. Yes. Basically changing the districts to give them an advantage. Yeah, and so, like, the total number of votes that they get as Republicans have been lower than the Democratic Party, I think, every single election since 1992, right? And that gap has been getting bigger and bigger that whole time. Um, I think the exception was 2002. But anyways, point is, is that total vote count, they are often losing. And what happened this time is that in a lot of districts, you had a lot of Democratic voters showing up, um, motivated by things like anti-Trumpism, motivated by fears of the collapse of, quote, democracy, motivated by things like the Supreme Court taking away abortion rights. You know, these kinds of things really did animate Democratic voters in ways that they didn't necessarily animate Republican voters. Um, Republican voters were being motivated by ideas like if Democrats win, we're all going to die, um, which is a bit of an exaggeration, but you know, it's what motivates them. Uh, but that's not as, as compelling in a lot of ways as the Supreme court took away abortion rights. Um, and the reason is, is that while we've been hearing the same thing from MAGA world for 
seven years. And as we were talking about before the show, right, how many times does Elvis play Vegas before the audience goes down, right? It doesn't have the same effect anymore. You've often pointed out people are not voting for Democrats so much out of this deep-seated love for the Democratic Party or some affinity for it, but they are seeing an external threat with the rise of MAGA, fascism, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. and wanting to put a check on that. And I think we saw that again to a certain degree. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go forward, but one of the uh, things that people have noticed is that uh, younger voters, you know, came out in large amounts and swung heavily towards uh, non-Republican uh, candidates and also pushed through a lot of bills across the U.S. that enshrined uh, reproductive freedom. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important thing to to keep in mind. I mean, we're not really necessarily watching people voting for Democrats as much as voting for non-Republicans, right? Like that is important um, because ultimately that sort of support that the Democrats get on the upswing of being, you know, not Republicans um, can level off if the Republican Party gets, you know, a, a little bit less Alex Jones, um, that the Democrats aren't actually convincing many people. The only thing they're convincing them of is the thing that is very obviously in front of all of us, which is that there is a faction of people within mainstream American politics that is spectacularly dangerous. And a lot of people can see that. But that's not support for Democrats. That's support for non-Republicans. That's the same way Biden got into office. And what that means is that, you know, like Joe Biden, when he got into office, didn't have a mandate to do stuff. He thought he did. He tried to act like he did. But he didn't. And there was a lot of pushback on things. And the same thing is going to happen here. Republicans don't have a mandate here. MAGA world definitely doesn't have a mandate here. Democrats really don't have a mandate here. And so really we have this problem in which most voters voted against, quote, the other team. Right? A lot of Republican voters, most of what MAGA world discourse is about. So, like, if you look at it, people in MAGA world don't talk about policy. Ever. You know, there was something like somebody tracked how many times Trump talked about tax policy in the 2016 election. Um, and he talked about it a number of times, but he proposed 16 different mutually exclusive policies in that period of time, many of which contradicted each other. Because he was just talking off the top of the dome. Like it doesn't, it's not like they have ideas about this stuff. And if, so if you look at really what they're running on, they're running on being not Democrats, right? Because Democrats are Marxists who are working with China and they're going to kill us all, right? So everyone's running on being not the other team functionally, right? And that's not exactly a vote of legitimacy. There's a famous quote by Newt Gingrich where he said, I don't know if Trump is a conservative, but I know he's anti-liberal. Yes. Meaning, yeah, we don't really know what his politics, I mean, you know, I would argue we kind of know what they are, but he was saying we don't really know what kind of policies he represents, but his stance is that he is opposed to the left, quote-unquote, opposed mm-hmm. to liberals, which, I mean, classically is a very fascist position. You know, Mussolini yep. was once asked, I think by the somebody in the Social Democrats, like, what exactly is your platform? And he replied, our platform is to smash you in the face. Yeah, and if you really look at MAGA politics, it is about this kind of evocative material sort of reaction right now the problem that they have though 
is that that evocative material reaction only exists for so long until repetition takes over. And so what you saw a lot was you saw them, them saying all the same things, but it had not having the same effects, right? So like they were talking about voter fraud, quote unquote, three months before the election. And at the point which you're talking about voter fraud three months before the election, but then you don't complain until you lose, like on election night or the night after, it's relatively transparent what you're doing. And that's exactly the pattern they followed. What they did this time was far less organized. It was very ad hoc. It was very like thrown together and it looked transparently like they were trying to, you know, overturn election results, right? Very obviously. Um, because what's going on in MAGA world is something that, you know, we were talking about this before the show. Um, I'm reading a book which is arguing something similar happened at the, you know, in the seventies and eighties in the Soviet Union where there is a form of language and expression which in itself starts to escape its own meaning. That it's not about, you know, uh, voting for or against the, the, you know, resolution in the Communist Youth League meeting or whatever, because everybody votes yes. And nobody actually pays attention to what it is. But it's about the ritual of voting yes, right? Um, in this case, it's all about this idea that the repetition is really about a claim of loyalty. Right. The, the argument is that the tail end of the Soviet Union, it was about normativity. They did these things to declare normativity. But in this case, they're doing these things to declare a sense of normativity internal to their own kind of political bubble. Now, the problem that they have, though, is that increasingly that repetition is getting divorced from any kind of reality that people can see. And without Trump in power to constantly reinforce those things, um, it's becoming increasingly obvious how absurd a lot of this is. Um, and they stop, they've stopped being able to convince people. You know, we've talked about this before, but Magaworld capped out its support a couple of years ago. And ever since then, it's been a decline. And what we now see is for the first time, we see someone vying for the throne, essentially, right? We see DeSantis making a move. But why is DeSantis making a move now? He's making a move because MAGA candidates did terribly in this election cycle. And it was obvious that that was going to happen. And it was something he could blame on Trump and therefore sort of make a move for Trump's position. Right now, that didn't work. So now you've got two guys, neither of which are going to give in to the other, fighting over who gets to run a political tendency, which in itself is at the beginning of a form of implosion. Right. That's one of the biggest takeaways from election night. Um, not even so much about majorities in Congress, but the biggest story is actually about the crisis in MAGA world that a lot of this is indicated. I don't know. I saw something floating around uh, the Internet, somebody in MAGA world saying, like, that's the essence of Trumpism is about crushing your enemies and the desire to see this state do that to people you don't like. Yeah. Uh, which is intrinsic within this political tendency. And I think no one exemplifies that better in the current terrain, uh, than, uh, DeSantis, especially like looking oh, at yeah. stuff like don't say gay, uh, mm-hmm. threatening to fire teachers if they mention, you know, things about slavery or something like that, you know, the so-called CRT, things like that. Um, yeah. And again, this is somebody that won, uh, the vote there by like 20 points. 
you know, yeah, by a healthy margin mm-hmm. against the person who is a known politician in Florida. Right. Who generally was pulling 45 percent. Yeah. Generally pulls about 45 percent statewide elections got trounced by DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I would say before we kind of get into some of the weeds here, um, I think this also just shows uh, just how siloed a lot of people are in their yeah. own beliefs. Like I was watching a mm-hmm. recap video and it was showing like Charlie Kirk and Steve Bannon kind of sitting around or, or it was Jack Posobiec and he was saying like, you know, I can't believe it. Like the left literally wants to like make everybody into some like transgendered blue haired freak or something like that. And it's like literally they, they have bought into their own BS and they've yes. like become so siloed that they actually believe their own rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And I think at a time too, when so many people are, so many just like everyday working class people not only are seeing the threat of rising authoritarianism, uh, they see the state actively curtailing freedoms, mm-hmm. um, but also they're facing this immense social and class war in front of them. And I think one of the most angering things that I saw is just this way in which the media tries to like silo people into like, oh, you're either this like latte coastal liberal that like has the has the freedom to like worry about abortion or something, or you're this like downtrodden factory worker that of course you love Trump because you're working class and you only care about quote unquote pocketbook issues. It's like like we were talking about this before we started recording. I mean, like there was a interview with Matt Gates for some reason on, on the young Turks, which is a progressive platform that does like, uh, it's, it's sort of like Infowars for progressives, but they had for some reason, Matt Gates on to interview him about the uh, midterms. And they were basically asking him about uh, wages and what could be done about inflation and his response was that the government should cut uh, social programs. Which is like, first of all, I mean, like the Democrats and Republicans have been doing that for decades. It's one of the things yes. that Clinton run out. You know, go back listen to your Tupac records. Like mm-hmm. you know, they were pushing, you know, uh, and this is the same thing that Gates was saying. Like we're going to make it harder for people to be on social programs like welfare or get cash aid. We're going to, you know, force them to go back to work as if people aren't working right now. Right. And the issue over the past couple decades has been people are being worked to death and they're not getting enough money to pay exuberant rising rents, uh, pay for mm-hmm. gas and fuel, education, healthcare, food. Again, we were, again, just talking before recording about this article that came out of Common Dreams about how corporations are doing better than they ever have since World War mm-hmm. II. And that inflation is largely being driven by massive amounts of price gouging. But no, Matt Gates's position is that what we should be doing is cutting things like, you know, food stamps, uh, you know, pre-K programs, you know, stuff that is a lifeline to some people if they do have it. We should be cutting that to make their lives harder. And that will somehow, quote unquote, stop inflation. I mean, this is the same BS we've been hearing for decades. And again, this is coded language aimed at upper middle class white people where Mm -hmm. they hear it and they think like oh well that doesn't mean anybody that looks like me that means black people in the inner city yeah 
And Republicans yeah. have been putting that forward for decades. There's that famous quote from that, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan aide where he said, like, decades ago, we used to say the N-word. Now we say welfare queens and, like, mm-hmm. recipients mm-hmm. to social programs. And people know that we mean people of color. Yeah. So I, I, I just bring this up because, you know, the Republicans don't have some magic bullet to to do anything like they want mm-hmm. this to happen they want people to be more poor like mm-hmm. this is part of the thing that they've created through these policies that we've yep. seen over the past couple decades i mean people are working longer and longer hours for less and less wages and mm-hmm. more and more of the money that we do have is being taken up by the economy through rent uh rising cost of living fuel Etc. Etc. We're seeing massive corporate profits. We're seeing um, the wealth inequality gap grow exponentially, and I mean the billionaire class is growing richer, and we're getting more impoverished. And that's how capitalism is keeping itself afloat. Yeah. Well, and then we wonder why politicians don't talk about policy, <laughs> right? Like it's kind of fascinating. You look at the Republican Party, and in 2020 they didn't even pass a platform, right? So a major political party that has no platform. Um, kind of the whole point of a political party is to, you know, advocate for a platform. So what are they at that point? Right? They're a voice box for grievance politics. And that's very convenient because when Republicans ran on policy, they had a hard time getting elected for exactly the reasons you're saying. Um, People don't like a lot of people who voted for Trump were also people who were excited about things that Bernie Sanders was saying. Right. And we talk about this on the show a lot, but one of the biggest fallacies in American politics is the idea that because most Americans or a healthy chunk of Americans do not associate with a political party, that that means that they're moderate, that they're quote between the two political parties. Now, I think there's a couple of questions that arise there. What does even between mean when they're overlapping, <laughs> right? Like at the point where the moderate wings of both political parties are functionally advocating for the same thing, what does it mean for there even to be a distance between the two, right? Um, but secondly, why does all of a sudden the Republican Party and the Democratic Party represent these kind of actual polls in American politics, as opposed to distinct positions within American politics, which they are? Right. Um, they're not particularly in themselves on a policy level, particularly extreme compared to, say, Republican Party rhetoric or, say, you know, people in kind of the, the left wing of the, of the Democratic Party, like Sanders people. Right. Um, but really, most Americans kind of have this mishmash of political positions. Right. A lot of Americans are in favor of things like universal health care. Most Americans support abortion rights, right? Um, a lot of Americans also want lower taxes because having more money is good, right? It's not a systematic politics that people have. They don't have clear political visions necessarily in, say, an ideological way, right? But really what's happening is that people are taking positions that make sense, Um that's a hard electorate to campaign for. But if you can campaign on the idea that them and people like them are under threat by the other people, well, you don't have to talk about any of those things that people might disagree with you on, right? All you have to do is convince them to be scared or convince them to feel under threat, 
somehow. And so if you really look at like Fox News, Newsmax, OAN, um, functionally what exists on those channels now is a running 24 hour day political fiction miniseries where they are kind of concocting an entire reality in which American cities are smoking ruins, where everyone's murdering each other constantly, and that there's these, you know, valiant Republicans in the suburbs who are, like, bunkering down in their neighborhoods. And, you know, this is the vision they're constructing. And again, that's effective for a while. But the, the question that this all raises now, at this point, is how much longer is that going to be true? Because it wasn't particularly effective this time. I do want to point out, and this is something that's been uh, been reported on uh, quite a bit in the last uh, week or so, but billionaires in the United States pumped nearly $900 million into <laughs> campaigns during the 2022 midterm cycle. Yeah. study found that about 60% of the money from billionaires went to Republicans, while about 40% went to Democrats. <laughs> uh it's yeah, it's just incredible. Nine hundred million. There's a famous uh, John Jay quote we're always saying in the podcast. John Jay was one of the the so-called founding fathers of the you know the signers of the Constitution. Um, but he said the people that own the country ought to govern it. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about that and the founding fathers and the Constitution, go back and listen to our interview with Robert Ovetz about how the constitution was created and all that stuff. But again, it just shows you that that remains true to this day. I mean, $900 million into these campaigns. Uh, there's a reason that, you know, Democrats and Republicans, when they're getting lots and lots of money donated to them by big corporations and people with invested corporate interest, uh, you know, push the policies they do, whether it's, you know, pro fracking or pro fossil fuels or what have you. I mean, because mm -hmm. they're bought and sold. And mm -hmm. this is the system that, you know, we are living under. And people wonder why Republicans, like you were saying, like create this fantasy world of grievance politics where people are always pointing the finger below them at mm -hmm. migrants, people of color, LGBTQ folks, but never above. And Democrats refuse to do anything that their base wants them to do, like, you know, mm -hmm. universal health care, you know, better wages, but, you know, so on and so on. Because those policies actually confront and come up against the power of capital yeah. in society. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's a reason why most of that money goes towards moderates, right? Um, functionally, what this election cycle allows is something that we've been talking about on this show ever since Joe Biden got elected. Um, so the Biden election was kind of this, you know, reemergence of the center, right? This sort of uh, possibility of this kind of constituted center between political parties where we sort of see moderates grouping together to sort of hold that space, right, and sort of form a majority to be able to push back against the, you know, uh, less centrist wings of, of their own political parties. But that didn't happen. 
And part of the reason I think that didn't happen is there was still a sense in the Republican Party, and I think you know January 6th prosecutions and the way that conservatives have leveraged those for propaganda, I think, is a driving force in this. But um, there was still this kind of weird loyalty oath to Trump that really prevented um, the center from reconstituting itself. You know, people like Mitch McConnell even Kevin McCarthy to a degree, uh, weren't able to sort of, you know, make those compromises, right? Or govern in the way that they would have prior to Trump. Um, instead, they had to kind of hold to this kind of rhetorically militant but increasingly absurd line. But now, that's not true anymore. Now, they can all look at the election results and go, well, we would have had a much bigger majority if Trump weren't around. Would have had a much bigger majority if, you know, people like Jared Majewski weren't running for office or we could control more governor's offices if people like Carrie Lake weren't running. Right. And they'd have an argument there. They legitimately would have an argument there. And so what is possible out of this is actually really fascinating. And that is that this reconstitution of the center that we've been talking about since Biden got elected is a thing that could very much happen now that MAGA world falling into um, sort of hitting its political ceiling and kind of you know, collapsing from that point to where we are now, um, that kind of collapse has created the opening for other factions of the Republican Party to kind of emerge. And you're starting to see that more and more and more, right? So this could be the thing that reconstitutes that kind of, you know, quote, political normality, right? This sort of return back to the big state politics of big policy in Washington of the Obama era, right, or before. Um, because that's a world that's eminently controllable for them, right? That really the center, the quote center in the United States, is a political tendency which is fundamentally grounded in stability politics. And the entire goal of people within that sort of political circle is to make things as consistent and stable as humanly possible, maybe modify things a little bit here and there, and those are kind of the points of disagreement between them, but functionally the goal is perpetuation. Right? This is why people in that faction are very pro-increasing the numbers of police, very pro-border, you know, quote, security, right? These are all forms of... Um, you know, engaging in, you know, defense, quote unquote, right? These are all forms of security politics. And Trumpism was able to be incorporated into that to a degree until January 6th. And after January 6th, I think, though you might not have seen the political split happen immediately, you did start seeing some Republicans start to drift away, um, start to really talk about, you know, threats to democracy from political violence without like naming specific tendencies. And, you know, we started, we've started to see a little bit more of this. All of that is this kind of attempt to create enough distance to reconstitute a stability politics. Um, because Trump world is in a really complicated place now where you have this situation in which they're sort of speaking symbolically, right? They're no longer talking to anybody but themselves. Um, and the things that they're saying aren't particularly 
persuasive isn't even the word. Like, they don't make any sense to anybody outside of that world. Yeah, and we, I think we've seen an acceleration also after the oh, yeah. attack on Paul Pelosi. I mean, oh, yeah. you can just, see, I was watching Morning Show, which is, I hate that show, but, um, <laughs> I mean, if you want to get a really good view of, like, what the center is thinking, you can, like, watch that show. Oh, yeah. Um, but I mean, they were just disgusted by the response from like MAGA world to that attack. I mean, like, uh, I think, uh, Don Jr. had some like weird holiday costume he was promoting Mm -hmm. on Halloween of like a hammer and like underwear or something like that, making fun of the attack. I know, uh, Carrie Lake made other jokes too. Um, but yeah, that just like terrifies the political class. I mean, you don't make fun of, you know, people in power being attacked by lowly commoners, you know? Um, yeah. And of course, like, the person that carried that out was, I mean, they had disgusting fascist ideas and stuff like that, which of course is not what's being really discussed. It's, mm-hmm. And and on Morning Joe, they even said, that, oh, there's been violence on both sides, and they brought up the, uh, the attack from, like, what was it, 2017 by that guy that lived in his van at the baseball party against Steve Scalise. Oh, yeah. And he was like, supposedly like a Bernie Sanders supporter. So of course that becomes like an example of like left wing violence or something. I don't know. <laughs> Again, like this, this refrain of both sides, which is just so laughable when there's been numerous mass shootings carried out by Trump supporters, far right people, white supremacists, and stuff like that. Of course that's never in the equation. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're tired of it. They're sick of it. And I think, too, just the extremes of MAGAism, again, gives them this ability to have that both sides discussion and to say, like, we want a return to the center. You know, we want uh, both these extremes to be, you know, curtailed. Like, I was just watching a a 60 Minutes thing where they were talking about essentially, like, far-right disinformation, but they turned it into this both sides of the spectrum the extremes are the ones that are causing this downfall and that if only the center could stand up and push mm-hmm. back against these extremists, you know, on the outside, then we could get back to being this functional society, which again, I mean, I think as anarchists and people that have a wider critique of capitalism, the state civilization, like we should, this is where we really need to be critical and like point mm-hmm. the finger yep. back at, at neoliberal capitalism and settler colonial society as a whole and just say, wait a minute, like what you're saying you want to get back to is a society that's on the edge of ecological collapse yep. where over three people a day are murdered by the police, you know, huge racial and wealth inequality, massive sexual violence. I mean, this is what you're defending. This is what mm-hmm. you're saying that you want to return to. And also too, like, I, I think like, you know, I've heard so many people talk about like, you know, trying to compare what's happening in the United States to like the fall of the Republic in Germany and the slide into Nazism. I mean, we have to remember that the United States was very capable of massive colonial violence and genocide oh, yeah. outside of a fascist framework. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, if you're listening to this in California, you're living in a state where the government was literally issuing through the newspaper, encouraging people to go out and, and murder and scalp and remove indigenous people from their land so they could have settlers go there. 
and take over their area. I mean, like, look what happened after the gold rush. I mean, the government mm-hmm. was literally encouraging genocide and paying people to carry it out. Like, the state yep. is very capable of doing these horrific things outside of this quote-unquote fascist framework. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the state is aligning with uh, paramilitary far-right groups you know, it's something that's very American. It's very part oh, yeah. of this <laughs> this system's Absolutely. like DNA and framework. And I think if if we're looking for a historical example to like run in parallel what's happening to now, I think it's much more uh, pertinent for us to look at what happened after Reconstruction, mm-hmm. where the state was attempting to come in and say like, okay, there's been the Civil War. We're going to try to make things better for for not only freed slaves, but also poor white people. We're going to try to do things like land redistribution. And what happened? You had former Confederates backed by wealthy landowners come together and said, no, we're going to wage this you know, insurgent guerrilla war against the state in order to reconstitute white supremacy in Jim Crow through not only violence, but through organized uh, political campaigns like white citizen councils, through the police, uh, through the military, all that stuff. And it was largely successful. Like, you know, I think we've talked about this on this show before, but I think this is really important to point out. Like, after the Civil War, there was civil rights legislation that in many ways was even more far-reaching than what was achieved in the 1960s. And that was voted down by the Supreme Court by the end of the century after the Civil War. It took literally a 100 years for the for the Civil Rights Act to be passed in the mid-1960s. So it took the United States 100 years to catch back up to where it was after the Civil mm-hmm. War. That's mm-hmm. how dedicated the system was to entrenching yeah. white supremacy and forcing Jim Crow on people. And again, this is all outside of a fascist framework, and it's yeah. within the confines of this settler colonial democratic mm-hmm. republic. And, and again, I think that we should be very clear on that as we see somebody like DeSantis rise within the Republican Party because my assumption is that just as Biden after the midterms gave this speech about how we need to come together and bipartisanship and we're going to work together and get all this stuff done, they are very excited to work with somebody like DeSantis even if they're Mm -hmm. going to say like, you know, oh, we disagree on policy or whatever. As long as he's basically willing to operate within this framework, yes. they're going to basically imply that they have no problems with him doing that, even though he's physically attacking whole mm-hmm. communities of people. I mean, we literally saw this right after the hurricane. You know, Biden and DeSantis came together and gave this speech like they were conquering heroes, while there were literally thousands of people out there in trailer parks that had been swept away that were still missing and they were patting themselves on the back that they literally like a couple days before the government hadn't even given out a warning to people to evacuate the area it's disgusting and this is the person that's going to be quote leading the republican party that biden says that we so diligently need to work for and there needs to be a strong republican force out there you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. back to you. yeah well and so it it points to two things, I think, which are really important, right? And which don't change on election night ever. Um, The first is that 
<clears throat> ultimately the state functions through the use of force to impose a sense of political normativity, right? And that normativity is stability, quote unquote. The features of that stability can change, right? Um, you can have stability in <clears throat> a place like San Francisco and that looks different than stability in rural Missouri, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, all politicians are united around the idea of the state continuing and them having sovereignty to use the police to tell us how to live. That always stays the case, right? Always. And what it points to is this kind of second layer of American politics, which in some ways Trumpism has opened up to a number of Americans in the same way that like radical politics and anarchist politics has to other people. Um, which is that we can start to understand American politics in on two different layers, right? The layer an election deals with is aesthetic, largely. It doesn't change the fundamental nature of the state. It, in fact, is a form of sort of repetition, right? Um, it's a ritual that sort of confers legitimacy, and they function within that sort of space. And what we notice is that whenever there's challenges to that, well, that's when the police have tear gas, Right. Even though this is a, quote, democracy, we still get tear gassed because ultimately what we live in is the dictatorship of liberal democracy. Right. This idea that there is a certain sort of politics that exists and all other politics needs to be forced into that form. And if it doesn't exist in a sort of parliamentary or discursive form, it's to be repressed. That is something that almost every politician in Washington can agree on, right? And that is something that still is the case and results from this. I think what gets interesting here, and this is really where I think the conflicts in the right wing are going to coalesce around, is in MAGA world, they can't follow that trajectory, right? They position themselves outside of that trajectory. How much that was actually true is up for debate, and the answer is not very much, but they did present themselves as, quote, draining the swamp, right? They presented themselves as an outside. But the problem that they now have is they've gone so far in a certain kind of direction while staying within the confines of liberal democracy that they're no longer able to be effective within that framework, that they can't speak to anybody. They can't draw any more support, right? And so... What has to happen in that world is that people can't become more conciliatory. That's not possible because it disrupts the narrative of the political fiction. So either they have to stay where they are now and sort of hold this position, or they have to continue to drift into further and further and further areas of obscurity, like areas of obscurity where they're going to have increasingly, increasingly small craft languages in which they speak to each other in. And they're going to be speaking to fewer and fewer people, right? Because ultimately, those that start to drift essentially are drifting themselves out of the ability to sort of have power within liberal democracy. Um, that they are now putting themselves on the outside of that, right? Of course, in a fascist direction on the outside of that. Um, but in that process, they're sort of creating this boundary again in which, you know, the Republican right wing can once again become a part of this kind of stability politics, right? Um, ultimately, that's what won in the election was that, right? It wasn't 
any political positions because nobody voted for political positions. Everyone was voting for the opposite of the other, quote, team, right? Or voting for what is not something that they are afraid is going to destroy their entire existence, right? But in that world, really what's happening is everybody is trying to vote for stability. And both political parties are fundamentally arguing stability politics, right? The Democrats are saying, well, if you vote for these Republicans, then, you know, everything's going to be Donald Trump and fascists are going to show up and so on, so on, so on. And that's going to destroy your lives and so on. And there's plenty of evidence to, to, you know, feel that. The Republican Party, on the other hand, is increasingly drifted into this kind of world of political fantasy in which, um, for some reason, people having, you know, gender identities outside of a gender binary somehow threatens their existence. I mean, it's the same thing when they insisted, insisted that if they couldn't force every single kid to pray in public school, that somehow their religious rights were getting infringed, right? It's an absurd narrative, but it is a narrative of disaster, ultimately, right? I think what becomes interesting, though, is the long-term cost of that. So as we drift further and further and further into the era of kind of grievance and attack politics within liberal democracy, what we're seeing is we're seeing the legitimacy of that structure kind of collapse, right? We're watching that happen in one direction with, with the right wing becoming more overtly authoritarian. You're seeing in, in other directions, you're seeing, you know, movements against police, movements against the prison system, right? Movements which fundamentally are about autonomy sort of emerging, and, and they have been emerging for some time, right? And so there's this sort of problem that has emerged. You know, you, you had uh, cited that quote by Lee Atwater, right, uh, earlier in the show, and Lee Atwater is one of the originators of this, right? This idea that you run entirely negatively, that you always attack the opponent, that you present the opponent as an existential threat to your safety, right? By doing that, though, what they've done is they first created political bifurcation that was irresolvable and then delegitimized the entire process around that. Because if everybody's horrible and terrible and going to kill you, or in MAGA world, if every election is rigged, then what's the point anymore? And so increasingly, what's becoming apparent in this kind of politics of not the other side, quote unquote, um, is that really the thing that is imploding is the legitimacy of liberal democracy. Joe Biden's not wrong about that. Right. Joe Biden, his entire narrative of the midterms are democracy is collapsing. Right. By, by which he means liberal democracy in the state form is collapsing. And he's not wrong about that. But in a lot of ways, the political class only has themselves to blame that they've done far more to delegitimize the political system than probably we have. Right. We've created these spaces outside of that for people to be able to sort of understand politics beyond those limitations. Right. But as far as the delegitimization, police and politicians do a wonderful job of that themselves. Right. Um, that this kind of campaigning, this sort of way of doing things where ultimately 
it comes down to a moderate political class trying to reconstitute stability in the face of them also simultaneously trying to delegitimize each other. We are starting to watch a sort of process of crumbling that happens when that occurs, right? The power struggles only occur for so long before the entire structure they're competing around having control over in itself sort of implodes, right? History has shown that time and time again. Well, I want to switch gears here really quick and pick your brain about something. Uh, I think a big question remains. So we are seeing this implosion with MAGA. What does that mean for things on the streets? Like, are we going to stop mm-hmm. seeing Proud Boys showing up to drag Queen Story hours? Are they going to stop going to city council meetings and screaming about burning books and stuff? Are we going to stop to see, like, this kind of, like, far-right crossover? Are they going to kind of, like, look at the tea leaves and reevaluate themselves? <laughs> or are, are some of these people just going to go all in and get even crazier? Yeah, I mean, that would involve self-awareness, right? <laughs> um, which a lot of these people lack almost entirely. Yeah, I mean, I think we are going to see a group of people within MAGA world try and sort of freeze the clock, you know, and sort of hang on to this this version of that, right? A lot of those people are going to be grouped around Trump. So if we really think about what Trump is experiencing at this moment, Right. He has this investigation going on about him taking classified documents. He's under investigation for January 6th. He's under investigation for tax fraud. He's under investigation for trying to rig the election in Georgia. So on, so on, so on, so on, so on. Right. And eventually some of that sticks. Right. And if it doesn't stick legally, it's sticking politically. Um, that. Trump essentially to stay the person that is sort of the kingmaker in MAGA world has to functionally freeze the clock has to say, okay, well, I mean, this is what this is and I am essential to that. And so you have to defend me. But I guess the question is going to be how many people are going to defend Trump over MAGA politics. I don't think very many, actually some will, he'll have his loyalists, but a lot of people, even when he was coming to power in 2016, we're talking about him as an instrument, right? As a tool to get some political goal that they couldn't get on their own. That it wasn't about Donald Trump for the supporters, for his like normal grassroots voters. Yeah, sure. There was a sort of cult of personality, but for people on the inside of that politics, that wasn't necessarily what was being said. Right. And so there's increasingly people in that world that, see their path forward as being a path that exists without Donald Trump. But they also can't become more a part of the political system. And so what you're going to see, I think, is you're going to see a number of kind of approaches to that problem, right? You're going to see people trying to freeze the clock, but that's going to be a small number of people grouped around Trump. You're going to see people like DeSantis try and take that, not really modify the politics at all, but sort of become the new face of that, right? Speak a little bit more forcefully, be a little bit more intransigent, right? Be a little bit more cruel. Take all of those minutes of television coverage that Trump has and direct them towards himself, right? That's really DeSantis' strategy here. And if he's successful and MAGA World sort of jumps onto that, well, then he will be able to sort of have a MAGA world, which will be, you know, 
have 20% support of the electorate still. But ultimately, I think what's going to happen if DeSantis and Trump tear each other to shreds, which is possible, um, is that you are going to see MAGA world fragment, at least to some degree. You're already seeing this with groups like the Proud Boys. I mean, you already saw the split in the Proud Boys around um, Enrique Trio being a Fed. But really, if you look at the terms of that argument that was happening at the time, it was really an argument between, you know, more kind of Proud Boys that were aligned with the Republican Party saying that really their job was to be kind of the armed wing of Trumpism and much more extreme people like Brian James who were arguing that really the Proud Boys had to exist outside of that. Right. That MAGA politics was important, but that wasn't enshrined in the Republican Party or Donald Trump. And really, they had to push it farther. Um, you are definitely going to see a faction of people do that. Um, those are going to be the people that still show up at Drag Queen Story Hour. Those are going to be, be the people that still try and burn books and disrupt school board meetings. Like, they're going to be there. Um, they always have been, and they've gotten a lot louder and more numerous. But the idea that all of a sudden conspiracy theories and the sort of reaction that they elicit disappears in American politics is to not understand American politics. It is, it is a very, very, very inherent part of the political narrative of a large part of, of the United States, right, for a lot of people. And so we are going to see probably more stuff like what happened to Paul Pelosi. We are probably going to see um, more stuff like what we're seeing from the far right on the streets. I think over time, though, if MAGA world can't reconstitute itself as a mainstream political force, like as a force that has the ability to win elections, I think you're going to see that dissipate. Like you're going to see that wing of MAGA world that is very animated by winning elections or taking power in some like way in which they, you know, stop voter fraud or something like this, um, you're going to see those people get increasingly sort of demotivated. And we're already seeing that, that that was indicated in this election. Those people didn't turn out as much, right? For people that are very, very, very convinced of the voter fraud stuff, they're not turning out either because all the elections are rigged. So what's the point, right? And so unless DeSantis specifically can consolidate MAGA world as an electoral force again, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see that sort of more electorally focused version of that kind of drift away and the harder far right version of that continue to do what they're doing. Um, but with increasingly extreme narratives, potentially, because the whole world's about one up, like one upping one another constantly. But I mean, is there a future for MAGAism post Trump? Like all of the boomers that come out to, the rallies and stuff, literally like their rock concerts and dress up and all yeah. that crap. I yeah. mean, are they going to do that if Trump is gone? I don't know. And I think this is the question. Like a lot of people don't give enough credence to the role that The Apprentice played in Donald Trump's fame. Like Donald Trump was a notorious asshole in the 70s and 80s, right? He was like the symbol of the worst parts of America. You know, that's what I always remember him as being. Just this guy who is just like, just almost the caricature of entitled, horrible capitalist, right? But then he does The Apprentice, and he gets to play that role, but he does it in public. He has this whole persona. He carries that persona over into commenting on Fox News. Like, he was doing that in the same sort of voice and intonation and pace 
that he would speak on The Apprentice, right? That was all very intentional. And I don't think a lot of people give enough credence to how important that was. But, and I think this is equally important, MAGA World has changed since that point. And it's smaller than it had been at its peak. And the people that are involved in it are more dedicated to the mission than they might have been before. And so if that stays true, I think MAGAism has an electoral life after Trump, but not one that is capable of winning majorities. Um, they're capping support at about 20 to 25 percent, which is still a disturbingly high number. But as that increasingly becomes you know, apparent and as that leads to Republicans losing elections, I think you could you might watch that electoral force sort of dissipate a bit. And if that happens, that would be a logical conclusion of the kind of political world that they created. So really the question, the big question is, is how much can DeSantis pull that world back from the precipice, right? That they're sort of on the verge of being um, <clears throat> sort of uh, incapable of existing electorally in any kind of meaningful you know, way that allows them to win elections, right, um, on their own, without other Republicans. Um, and it really becomes this question of how much can DeSantis recapture that imagination? Because MAGAism is a, it's political fiction, right? It's a miniseries. And that miniseries exists to the degree that people feel like they can be participants in the miniseries. And if DeSantis can become the next television star, then that works. But if DeSantis is off-putting to those people, then it doesn't. Because ultimately, the politics that they're articulating isn't verbal, right? It's not about ideas or articulations. It's not about, you know, new, better ideas. It's about repetitions of loyalty, emotion, right? Grievance, anger, those kinds of things. And ultimately, imagination. That there's a reason that QAnon and... MAGA world exist, you know, layered on top of each other. Because at the end of the day, QAnon is nothing but a small extension of the political fiction that exists in MAGA world already. You know, you add pedophiles and this narrative of the deep state, and all of a sudden you go from pastors saying that Donald Trump is the next messiah to QAnon. It's not that big of a drift. But ultimately, that politics is a politics of imagination. And it's really a big question of, can DeSantis capture that imagination? I don't know. We have another question of just sheer numbers. MAGA world skews older. And they're not pulling in younger people. And so over time, there's just quantitatively fewer of them. And that will eventually have a major effect. It hasn't yet, but it will. And so really the question isn't just, can DeSantis be the next television star? Can he capture the imagination and reconsolidate MAGA world? But can he do that in a way that pulls in new people? And I don't know if he's capable of that. I don't think he is. Because to be the person that captures the imagination, he has to embody a politics of cruelty that attacks so many people that it's very difficult to imagine him gaining any more support than he's already got at that point. Right? And so... This question of Ron DeSantis becomes this question really of can DeSantis consolidate and expand MAGA world as opposed to can he become the new figurehead of a political tendency that slowly crumbles into the ground, 
Um, I, I don't think we know enough yet to know that. But we will be figuring this out probably in the next six or seven months as we see that contest between Trump and DeSantis shake out a little bit more. Well, I guess the last question to ask is what any of this means for us, because, you know, for a lot of us, elections are a huge headache. I mean, as, <laughs> as a friend said, like, this is something I think we got to keep in mind. I mean, this is when politicians and political parties really refine their talking points. I mean, they test things out. They see what works. They kind of go back to the drawing board and, you know, they continue to go on as these representatives of the ruling class that try to keep this society together and, and humming to create massive profits for some and the rest of us keep going to work. Um, I think what we can, I mean, I think, you know, as we've already said, like, I think that the resistance that people have engaged in over the past uh, two years has managed to keep a lot of this stuff in the forefront of a lot of people's minds, which has been good. And going forward, I mean, you know, even though in some states some, you know, new laws have been passed, we still have, a, you know, a lot of work uh, ahead of us. I think that one thing for me is very clear that the economic situation is getting worse and neither party has any sort of, you know, they're not putting anything forward to make anybody's lives better. And we need to be there not only to engage in like mutual aid efforts and, you know, building up things like tenant unions and stuff like that, but we also need to be able to expose those massive contradictions and talk about how capitalism is immiserating people's lives and just throwing people out on the streets. I mean, I'm just reading this, looking at this article right now about how poverty among seniors, I mean, we're talking about how a lot of older people swing more conservative, but the poverty rate for people over 65 and older rose from 8.9% in 2020 to 10.3% in 2021. Uh, more and more seniors are becoming homeless because they can't afford, uh, to choose between prescription drugs and rent. Uh, I mean, these problems that we're all facing are getting worse and worse. You know, where the cost of living continues to rise, rent is still going up. None of this stuff is going to change anytime soon. I mean, it hasn't for the past couple decades. Wages have stagnated. I think, you know, what, benefited campaigns like Fetterman that they pointed to is kind of this pointing towards like unions and, and struggle. Um, you know, but we are the material force that embraces actually social movements and people organizing. I think we just have to continue to keep our eyes on the prize of building that counter society, building counter institutions, creating movement infrastructure, becoming larger, getting more people involved and just continuing forward, I mean, continuing to stay the course and continuing to do that day-to-day -day organizing wherever you're living, whether it's fighting a pipeline, whether it's, you know, building up an abortion doula collective, whether it's a mutual aid program, whether it's a tenant, uh, you know, union, whether it's fighting the Proud Boys, all that stuff is important. We just need to kind of continue on that course and in encourage more people to get involved. I think the louder 
we become and more people are there doing that work, the more we'll be able to point out these contradictions that everyone is talking about, but politics is not able to answer because it is the thing that is immiserating people's lives. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.